Howdy, howdy, everyone. I'm Daisy Blue. I'm your host, and this is the Abiding Blue Podcast. My job is to ask all the awkward and weird questions that you want to hear about your favorite songs as told by the artists themselves. So with that in mind, let's get to today's guest. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Abiding Blue Podcast. I am your host, Daisy Blue, and uh, we are sitting here recording live at the Icebox Brewery. Our sponsors today, I have Sage Gentlewing is our featured guest. How are you doing, Sage? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Excellent. I'm glad to be here. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be sitting with you here in person. I have this amazing brew before me. Um, I've been kind of telling some people the whole point of why I even started this podcast is just so that I could hop to local venues and just hang around. How I've picked the sponsors is I just, I just pick up the phone and I call them. Like, are you guys down to, to, to sponsor? So this is not people who came to me and are trying to get me to sell something. These are people that I've reached out to and said, I love your venue, I love your product. So I'm sitting here with one of the newest brews from the Icebox Brewery. Icebox is local, local, local. They're a local Las Cruces brewery. They have three locations now, and um, I love their brews here. What is I the name of it. that brew? This it looks is, like an amber. Okay, so it's called the Sour Wit, and it's a very tart beer. Very tart emphasis. Emphasis? On tart. Emphasis on tart. <laughs> and so it's a great summer brew here, and... Um, yeah, I, I love it. Before the show started, we had some ladies sitting off in the corner meeting about something. I had the chance to talk to, to one of them. They have a new, brew, well, not a new brew, but they have um, a brew here that they've canned called the Janet Brown Brew. I think I'm saying that right. And essentially, part of the proceeds of buying this beer goes to help like fund those with cancer to be able to go and seek treatment. Um, so there's a program called CARE that helps get the funding from these brews here. And I, it was just a coincidence. I got a chat with one of them earlier today. So I love doing this. I love the local aspect of it. I love the Icebox Brewery. Please, if you have a chance, come on out here, support local and um, have a brew. I know, Sage, you said that you were a lager man. Is that, did no, I get I, that right? I'm kind of a stout, stout that's guy. That's what you said. I mean, yeah. I hope I don't look stout, but I drink stouts. And that's, that's really my thing. I like dark beers. I mean, I'll drink a dark lager in, if there's no stout and uh, porters. But I kind of try to stick with the dark beers myself, mm-hmm. which is a little harder in the summer because a lot of people brew lighter beers in the summer. You got to kind of search around for them. These guys got a good one. I I usually don't like the darker beers. They have a beer that I love that I'll talk about every time that we're here, which is called the Cookie Monster beer. And they make it seasonal for no reason that I'm okay with. <laughs> but you can only get it like in the winter months of the year. I don't know if that's a stout or not now that I think about it. Cookie I'm Monster sure. kind of sounds like it would be a stout, but who knows? Because I yeah. think I've only seen a couple of stouts in here that are run regular so that might be a seasonal that it's not regular Season. i just know it's dark looking so whatever that whatever that means i did not claim to be a brew master um but all right so sage let's talk a little bit more about the brewing of your 
career. Oh my god! Did you like that transition? That's That's a, that is smooth, smooth. Right? smooth. <laughs> For those who are listening to the show who uh, have aren't familiar with your music, they've never had a chance to come out to your shows. Maybe they don't even live in Las Cruces. Who are you, and what are you about? Well, uh, I've been trying to figure that out for almost 70 years now. Because <laughs> it's a loaded question. I, I still like, haven't come up with a good answer. I don't know. And that's I the end really of the show. I don't know who I am. <laughs> um, you know, the short version is singer, songwriter, guitarist, mm-hmm. uh, as far as the professional, professional side of it. Um, and emphasis on songwriter and guitarist. <laughs> um, I, I've played in a lot of bands over 40 years you know time i mean uh actually more than 50 years if you really want to start where i started because i started on drums and i was a drummer when i was 15 that's a great way to start yeah Yeah, i was a drummer when i was 15 and i actually god bless the drum since i was about 11 and then i was very studious about it and got into a really good band for a while and um thought i was going to just do that and life took a left turn and uh, somewhere in the middle of that left turn, uh, I switched to guitar in around 1967. So um, I never looked back, and I just started uh, playing in bands as a guitar player, and I kind of never got back to the drums professionally, but I've always kept a little hand in percussion or something. I mean, I have good rhythm, so there's Mm -hmm. been periods of my life where I've kind of wafted through the percussion world and I studied tablas for a couple of years and played those you know, East Indian hand drums. And I studied with Zakir Hussain, who not a lot of people would know who he is, but he's one of the world's masters of um, tablas. And I got to study a master class with his father, uh, Alaraka. Now, Alaraka played in the concert for Bangladesh with George Harrison. And No uh, kidding. Yeah, I mean, that's his father, right? But. Yeah. Zach here played in Shakti uh, with John McLaughlin and, um, you know, uh, some really, he's just, you know, on hundreds of recordings. He was actually the drum teacher for a while for Mickey Hart from The Grateful Dead. So, you know, I got to study with him for a couple of years in Berkeley and played for 10 years. And then, you know, I kind of kept going with the guitar and that fell away for a while and I don't play him anymore. So it would you say that your style of music has stayed the same over the years or, or what would you define your style of music as and what do you love most about it? That's a really good question because actually I've considered myself as a musician to be ever evolving and never locked into a specific genre. I started like a lot of people started with folk music and uh, learned finger picking and Travis picking and different things like that. And I've always kept a hand in that. But there was many years, um, 12 years, in fact, very specifically that I just studied bebop and swing jazz. So I played in big bands and I played in small combos and just doing like, you know, uh, hardcore jazz. And I didn't play anything else. And then that kind of molted around into getting back into rock. But I've, I've always considered myself kind of a, a heartfelt or heart-centered musician, which is whatever turns me on is wh- the direction that I'm going to go. And it could be blues. I mean, I'm steeped in blues. I was raised in blues. I was hearing when your warm-ups there, I definitely heard some bluesy tunes come yeah. out there. Yeah. I don't know if those were all originals or not. but Those are all originals. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah. Well, they're good. Thank you. <laughs> 
Maybe um, you'll get to hear some. We try. I say to the audience, yeah. But you know, I, I've I've tried to go through all the genres at some point in my career because it's been a long career. Like mm-hmm. really, I started in '66, and in '67 as a guitar player. So '66 was a very short-lived career because I was still a kid, and then I switched to guitar. But I was actually playing professionally, um, semi-professionally. As a kid, I had a band. We actually opened for Buffalo Springfield and Janis well, Joplin and all that stuff. Okay, because yeah. a lot of people use that word differently. So I was going to ask, well, what's the definition of playing as a professional? So, right. um, I, but I've seen the different like performance credits that you've given, and mm-hmm. you have quite a bit of a solid history as a performer. Well. <sighs> You know, my definition of a professional musician is someone who makes his living, who's able to support himself financially through his music. Now, that could be anything. You could be a teacher. You could be, you know, in various different disciplines of the performing arts as a musician. But if you're in that performing art genre, you're still making your living. I I pretty much defined it for myself as just being a working musician. And so I've been a guitarist and I've been a singer-songwriter, and they're not the same. You know, I mean, I've been hired to play in other people's bands and shut up and play your guitar, you know. And then there's other times when I'm doing this where I'm just writing my own songs, singing my own songs, which is what I really love to do. Um, But actually, if I was given my brothers, I would be doing my own music but with my own band. Mm -hmm. And that's very difficult for me, especially at this age, to get together because life you know just there's so much happens around life commitments to be able to do what you do and i have found that it's easier for me to make a living as a singer songwriter than it is to make a living in a locally in a full band because you just can't make the money as a the fifth member of a a band necessarily but you can make the money as a songwriter and there's a lot of work for it however I prefer to play in bands if I can do it because you actually get a better audience with a band. It's very difficult to get a following as a local uh, singer-songwriter, even if you're working all the time, because your venues themselves are kind of limited to that particular audience, your local audience. Right. And so you're going to get who you get, but you need to break out of that into four or five, six hundred people or a thousand people or fifteen hundred people to to um, be able to, first of all, um, get any kind of a serious fan base for your music, and second of all, that you're going to make enough money as the fourth or fifth member of your own band to be able to support yourself. Well, and see, and I hope this podcast helps reach that different audience as well. Now, there was something that we were talking about before we um, started the show, and that is... All of the beating that you have, like I'm sorry, but we got to bring it up because I feel like beating is part of your brand, and it's gorgeous from literally your head down to your toes. You are covered with these colorful handcrafted beads. What's the story there? That's the story right there. Is my wife sitting right out there? And I don't know if you see her in the audience or not, but. Um, That's right. She, and she's wearing no beadwork <laughs> no and sandals today. of all things, but usually she's was, decked out. I think I saw like a bra- she was wearing a bracelet when she came in. That's what gave you away. And I was like, ah, mm. that must be Sage's wife. So Tony uh, is a, 
a multi-disciplined artist, and beadwork is just one of the many things that she does as a craftsperson. But mm -hmm. it's kind of her thing, um, along with so many other things. Um, she used to be a hatter that made these kinds, not this particular hat, you know, same, specifically, but she used to work hatter. for a famous hat maker. What was it, the Farrell Brothers? Was it? Kevin O'Farrell. Oh, she, wow. Yeah, she worked for him for... 12 years and she also worked for a boot maker western boot maker for 12 years she was a horse trainer she's uh, was a rider she was a sharpshooter she was all these different things and she's my wife and i love her <laughs> <laughs> i got lucky well i think i feel like the hat's kind of part of your look too. the hat is kind of a brand these days so. because first of all i love the hat and um i have several and i wear different hats for different days mm -hmm. different things but this one i wear a lot and, uh, of course, she made the hat band, and I kind of gave her a couple of little designs that are in that hat band um, that are uh, part of my shield, I guess you would say. You know, it's kind of a design that has been a brand for me for a long time, and it's uh, on a deeper level than just art. It's kind of more your – that's kind of more like your personal journey. Yeah. I like that. Well, I like that because you could call it a logo that makes it sound more – I guess like superficial, more business oriented, whereas your shield is something much more personal. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear one of your songs. Is there an intro that you want to kind of talk us into what we're about to hear or if you want to kind of talk about it afterwards? No, I'll, I'll give a little lead up to it because I think it makes the song more interesting. And the very first thing I need to say is uh, I've kind of been recovering from a surgery for the last week. And this is the first time I've actually sang a song and gotten through it. Um, you know, and I'm not really... Usually I go out and do these kinds of things. I've been playing every night somewhere. You just go out and knock it out. Um, this one takes a little concentration. and But it's, it's about... Um, I lived in Nashville when I was 18, and I, I went out there to be a session guitar player. And this is 1969, well, 1970. Mm -hmm. And um, that didn't really work out as well as I planned, mainly just because I was very green, and I didn't really know what I was doing. But I met the most amazing people when I went there. And one of the people, I, I didn't actually meet him while I was there. I met him 10 years later, but my... Uh, roommates that I was staying with for the first two weeks that I got to Nashville were friends of Chris Christopherson. And they, and he was not well known then. Bobby McGee hadn't happened with Janis Joplin or any wow. of that stuff. That was a hit that she had that he wrote and it made him as famous. But anyway, they said, well, we got this friend, man. I think you guys get along really well. And, you know, um, you want to go over to his house and we'll introduce you. And I said, sure. And so it was Chris Christopherson's house near Vanderbilt University in Nashville in 1970. And everybody was in town then, um, except for him. He was on the road with Billy Swan. Ah. So I get over there, Shucks. and we meet his roommates, and, uh, or his roommate. And he, he, I played him some Chris of my songs. Chris Christopherson had a roommate? He had a roommate. Um, he was rooming. He had a ranch-style house near Vanderbilt University. And uh, he had a roommate, and uh, they, you know, renter, shared rent. And uh, he says, well, you know, Chris is out on the road, but I'll give you a number to call. And this is before cell phones, so you had to go to a pay phone. So I remember being 18 years old and calling Chris Christopherson on the phone and him answering. 
and going, hi, I was over at your house the other night, you know, and you said you're coming back and everything, and I'd uh, love to meet you. And, and he was very cordial and said, yeah, we'd love to do that, but uh, I'm only going to be back for a couple of days. I go right back out on the road, so if you can work it out. And for whatever reasons, um, that got short-circuited, and I never made it over there. And I was only in town for about four or five months, and he was out of town almost the whole time. So 10 ah. years later... I was the guitar player on the Circus Vargas band. It was an eight-piece show band traveling with the Tent Top, traveling Tent Top Circus, Circus Vargas. It's like the largest traveling Tent Top Circus in the world. And uh, it's in the Guinness World Book of Records. Wow. And we were in Santa Monica, and Chris Christopherson shows up. So I said, well, I'm going to go over there and say hi, you know. And all these people were hitting him up for autographs and everything, and I just said... Chris, I don't want your autograph or anything. I'm the musician in the band and everything. But I just wanted to ask you a question. And so I mentioned a mutual name that he would have known. I won't say it here, but it was a friend that my friend in California told me about before I went, even went to Nashville. Mm-hmm. And so I mentioned that name, and he stopped everything, and he talked to me for like 15 minutes. And he goes, wow, how do you know that person? I mean, that, that takes me back to my drinking days. <laughs> so... Uh, long story, it just goes on and on. This story goes on and on. But here's one, of, here's one of the tenets of what this song is really all about. Is I said, so, okay, I'm working as a guitar player, but I'm also a singer-songwriter. Is there anything that you could do or say or people that you could steer me to to maybe help my career? You know, And I know that's, you get hit that's every question, time by that right? question. Yeah. And he goes, no. He goes, call my manager at William Morris Agency and tell him I sent you. Well, the next day, our, our whole show was going to Pocatillo, Idaho, from Santa Monica, overnight. We didn't have cell phones or anything. You had to go to a phone booth if you wanted to make a phone call, and we just got really busy, and we were working every single day, three shows a day. Mm-hmm. And eight months went by, and I never made that call. And then it just kind of went away. You know, you just kind of like, that opportunity is uh... gone. You should have jumped on that when it was happening, brother. Lessons learned, yeah. So... This song is kind of about a lot of circumstances like that that happened to me within a certain period of time when I was very young, very naive, very green, didn't know what I was doing. But I had this, the whole world just kind of was open to me, and I didn't see it at the time. I'm excited to hear this tune. Well, if I can remember it, (laughs) this is one of those tunes, man. called Eyes in the Back of My Head. Back of my head Back of my head Back of my head It was an innocent time Back in Nashville town In 1970 I was green as the ground Centennial Park Too young to know Swapping songs on the steps of the Parthenon With David Allen Cole What did I know? We shared our best songs The hoot and a shout But even David Allen Cole didn't know back then How it would all turn out If I had only had eyes 
back of my head To see what I had left behind While I blindly forged ahead I would have taken the wheel With a steadier hand And I've been traveling Without a clue or a plan I would have saved my money When it's time to get on I've spent every last red cent On wine, women, and song Wine, women, and song If I'd only known that What I later found out If I had only known then What was revealed today I might have found my place Back in the day But I wanted my freedom So I just walked away But I later found out But I didn't know then You pass a chance of a lifetime Might not come again Might not come again If I'd only known then But I later found out And the crowd goes wild. Man, I love that tune. Do you re- do you remember the writing process of that particular song? Um, I I do actually. Um, I was living in uh, Mesa, Arizona, renting from a lady, and uh, she had her. My landlady lived in the hall right across the room upstairs. And it was a big house, and I had a room there. And um, I was in a, I won't go into all the detail, but I wasn't in the best frame of mind. Um, I had some relationship things going on. It was way before I met my wife and everything. And I had some relationship things going on that were dogging me, and I was just in a, not a very good headspace. And I just remember for some wild reason, you know, I was in my bedroom and I picked up the guitar. And these chords came out, 
it was really the chords that came first. Mm-hmm. And I just started singing. And then the story. And I, re- I knew immediately as soon as I started singing what it was about because it's my life. And it just that whole part of it just kind of flowed. I wrote the whole song and all the lyrics in one night, in one sitting. Really? And I just, it just poured out. And I remember my landlady, who is really into music, she comes across the hall and she goes, are you, did you just write that? Because I, you know, I was at it for a while. And I said, yeah. And she goes, ah, that's a good song. I like that song a lot. And she was the most critical person. Like, <laughs> to hear her say that it was like a validation or something because like, I knew it. she I didn't knew like it a lot good. of my songs. You know? And she was like, ah, you know. But that one, she was like, that's a good song. And that was like 2008, 2007, about 2007, something like that. Yeah, so I was just yeah thinking the whole concept of the eyes in the back of your head is, you know, I feel like the most common connotation is like, hey, don't mess with me. I got eyes not in the front of my head, but also the back of my head. Like, you better watch out. But the idea of, like, looking at what's behind you. That is the idea, you know. Yeah, I like I, that. I thought about that myself. You know, I was like, well, what am I really saying? And I, I, I kind of really knew at the time that it was coming out that is looking behind is looking back on your life and it's looking back at all the opportunities that you've missed you know the good opportunities and also that what you thought was going to happen or you wanted to happen didn't really happen but what did happen was just as interesting and just as good and also led you to the next thing in life which in my life has been rich with experience yeah. so you know that philosophical thing that you go to in your mind that says well you know when something doesn't work the way you want it to um, but you think to yourself this is leading to something else that's either better equal or completely different and and just as rewarding so um, that actually happened You know, I mean, actually, when I went to Nashville, I was on my way to Memphis, and I got stuck in Nashville, so there's that, too. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Usually, people go to Nashville, like, totally on purpose, right? You know what? I I did go to Nashville on purpose um, for about five minutes, but I wasn't really into country music when I went to Nashville in 1970. I was into Memphis soul. I like Booker T and the MGs and that whole thing, you know, and Stax Volt, all that horns, you know, and, you know, Etta James and all that stuff. I was really yeah. into that, you know, uh, as I was kind of like a, you know, your typical white soul brother or something. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I don't know how much the landscape of Nashville has changed over the years. I just, um, uh, my impression of Nashville is it's kind of branched out a little bit. It's not so much just country anymore. At least that's my impression from the short time that I spent there is that it's gotten like a good um, mix. Oh, like, oh, I don't know. I've been calling this time PC. I was there PC pre COVID. <laughs> well, Those are PC times. Ago. Yeah, it's not that long ago. When was that? Was that, uh, was that 2019? Yeah, 2019, right before then. But I heard a lot of great different music there. Um, yeah, I don't think I heard too much country, but I stayed out of the kind of touristy yeah. areas and uh, was definitely more interested in the singer-songwriter locations, which I sought out. Well, you know, 
And, and there's a difference, too, in time. Like, we just read an article by Alan Jackson the other day who was saying that there's, country music is completely gone forever now as it used to be from the country music that he grew up on and plays and Didn't his his brand. And he's not happy about it. But he's you know, he's talking specifically about Nashville and saying, you know, how the industry itself has changed so much it can never get back to what old country was, which is really just life. You know, heartfelt. Mm. It's not really about your blue jeans or your trucks or your, or truck. your beers or any of that stuff. It's just it's or your all mama. that stuff is in there. Or but, a train. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or when the you, rain. When you hear the old country and they're talking about a train, mm-hmm. you know, it it's different because it's not name-checked in a way that, you know, I better put this in the song so it's a country song. They were talking about, I rode the rails, you know. Right. And the, the Depression era, you know, and the Dust Bowl. And, that, and here's a folk song to tell you that story, like the Carter family and stuff. So it's a different... The industry grew up from that and morphed into hits. You know, let's sell music and what's the demographic and let's play to the demographic. And and that's always been true to a little bit in terms of radio and even specific audiences. But it's it, it wasn't what really drove country music to begin with. So, you know, I mean, it was honest back then and i don't think it's as honest now and that's not to say that there aren't some really good country songs out there now every once in a while you can find somebody who's really laying it down in a true fashion but you know you listen to if you listen to a standard country radio like prime country or something like that every single song sounds like they just put another artist in and change like one note in the melody and then rearrange the lyrics a little bit to put the verse in the chorus or something and it's a new hit. So I've been calling it pop country or that's my definition of contemporary country. But I think the instrumentation has changed as well. You don't hear the steel guitars. I think that was Alan Jackson's they got complaint. Rid of the steel guitar. He's like, Where did the steel's guitar go? Where did the um Oh my gosh, brain fart. Um <laughs> Well, fiddle. Where did the fiddle, fiddle go? Steel yeah. guitars, dobros, yeah, banjos, even mandolins. Yeah. I mean, it's still all there. You find it more in bluegrass because that is bluegrass. You can't really. Or Americana. Americana, Americana. and bluegrass is what country, I guess, used to be. Well, I'll see how Americana spun off from people being fed up with how generic country music had gotten. Uh-huh. So they kind of created another sort of generic genre because Americana is folk music, bluegrass, country music, blues, even, you know, jazz. I mean, you can throw any genre in Americana, and as long as you're telling a story, it's Americana. That song that I just played would be, I would, in my own mind, I would think that would fit in an Americana context. Yeah. Even though it's not, you know, Appalachian necessarily, it's, the story is totally Americana. So you said something earlier that really, really resonates with me, and you used the word that the the industry out there, or and I know you're talking about the song specifically, they're just not as honest. And that, that word holds so true to me, and I feel like it's just the inner core of everything that a good songwriter has to be. You have to be honest to write a song that can connect with people because I really feel that the heart of connection is vulnerability and you cannot get there without being honest. That's really um, 
wonderful that you <laughs> used the word vulnerability. I mean, honestly, that's the heart of it right there is to open yourself to being who you really are and what your experience really was. Don't try to color it up. Um, and you have to suffer a little bit to get to that place with yourself, I think, mm -hmm. to feel okay about exposing that part of you as a songwriter. I think a lot of people in general, in any walk of life, kind of wear the mask of how they project themselves versus who they really are. Right. And, um, to fit the brand. Like we're talking about like the difference between a logo and a shield. You, you know. The brand. And people project their brand, but it's not necessarily who they are. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I would have a hard time. And in fact, I did have a hard time. It's, it takes days to get through the whole story. But I mean, I have been signed before a couple of times with record labels, small record labels. And they were really really cool people, but there was a few situations where I could have been signed to a bigger label and I turned it down because they wanted to completely brand me, but it wasn't who I was. Yeah. And I, I actually kind of regret not having just said, sure, let's do it. Let's get the hit and then walk away from and it. And then open up some doors. And you'd have a name to brand then, yourself with. You know, you'd have, you would have made your name and then, oh, well, Sage is now on this label, you know. That's how a lot of people do it because if you don't make a name for yourself at a certain period of time, you're kind of up against it uh, to, to get any further than, you know, local gigs and stuff because people don't take you as seriously. Well, what did right. you do in your life? You know, well, I've done a lot. But it didn't necessarily involve being a star. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. There's what which is the road to, you know, quote unquote selling out and then what's being true to an artist and then what's being I'm a business person. As as a musician, you can call it all sorts of things and you can try to keep it as authentic as you can, but at the end of the day you're a sole proprietor. And you're trying to make money doing what you love. So there, there are compromises to once you start, you know, trying to fund yourself. So um, that's always a question that I have. I'm like, at what, at what point, what lines am I willing to cross and what am I not? And I have that battle constantly. But um, seeking more about honesty is the next song you're going to play for us. Is that a, a tune that you would say is honest to you and your story? Totally fake. It's, totally it's, fake. It's, it's totally okay. fake. <laughs> Um, it, this tune actually is on my CD. I have a CD out. Uh, by the way, you can get it on my website at sagegentlewing.com. I'm, I'm sure she was going to plug it later. But um, I have a double CD out. This is more like a um, combination of a compilation and some newer tunes that were recorded in the last couple of years, but mm -hmm. also a collection of songs of recordings made over the last 35 years. And uh, so there's two versions of this song that are on the CD. One's a band version, and the other one's just the way you're going to hear it now, only it's in a different key. And, um, and your, then your on, shoes uh, on the Telecaster, the you know, it's just done sitting around playing guitar. And um, this song, actually, I wrote here in Chamberino. And, uh, <coughs> it's a long story around that, too, but... Uh, the short end of it was when I arrived in Las Cruces, I was living in my truck coming down from Portland, in my car, coming down from Portland, Oregon, and I'd been on the road for about a month after I left Portland, just having a good time. I mean, I wasn't, you know, 
I, I wasn't struggling necessarily, but I didn't have a lot of means. And so I just stayed in my car. And then I found a really good place to, to stay where I got a really good rent in this place on a beautiful piece of land. And this song came out like the first night I landed there. And it's really about having a place to relax, to, you know, open and just breathe. Because life can be kind of scary on the road. You know, you can, mm-hmm. you're, you're up right in, in the elements. And that includes people and situations and environments that you find yourself in when you're just on the road. So, so this is kind of like letting down, because I think there is a balance too, to even if you are being a true artist and you're sticking to your message and you're being true to yourself, uh, performing, you still have a perception that people have of you that may also not necessarily be who you are, but you don't need to let everybody know every single private thought in your head. You're, yeah, I do. you're already, <laughs> <laughs> she'll tell you I, <laughs> I'm <was> a font. <laughs> I'm just projecting. I'm like, is that what this song's about? Like yeah. just taking that time for yourself. Well, these songs, you know, the one I just sang in this one, these are pretty literal songs, but they're also reflective in that, you know, it tells a story, but it's also reflecting on the experience in, in the situation. So, it's it's as honest in my world it's as honest as i can write it's as honest as i can get because i'm writing for myself to begin with because writing for me has always been therapy Mm -hmm. it's always been something that i go to to work through stuff or to find some other level within myself or to access that mysterious x factor that's right there in the ethers you know Mm -hmm. and um so songwriting for me has always been spiritual as well as uh an act of craft so So what is this song called again it's called broken dream broken dreams okay and i i've rarely ever played on my acoustic and it's a little bit challenging so i'm all right buckle in folks buckle in you know Can life be right again Like it was when I was ten When the world wasn't spinning Out of control Looking back I understand How things got out of hand Does anybody really plan to go down that road I finally found a place to stay where I can rest and play really makes me wonder how I even got this far cause mine's a broken dream like so many I've seen Really makes me grateful Just to be alive All along the way A miracle a day If there's any prayer I praise that it's also true for you Wherever you roam You'll always find a home 
Well, there's nothing like a hot bath to make even the hardest of times seem all right. I hope you find a world whose light does shine on you. Strangers who are kind, as true love finds its way to your heart someday. Yeah. So, you like that? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the audience really likes that. Hankies, everyone. <laughs> so, Thank you. I know you started as a drummer and then you went to guitar. When did the vocal piece come in? Because that was really a, a beautiful vocal performance just now. Well, I got to tell you something. I have right. never sung that song in my tenor voice before. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote it on a Telecaster in standard tuning and the same chords, but it puts my voice down lower. So you're really singing like, you know, can life be right again? You know, you're down there and you stay down there. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I've sung the song since for the last seven years and I kind of let it go and stop singing it for a while just because you get tired of hearing your, so- your own songs a lot and you write new ones mm-hmm. and then you want to play those. And so I would kind of sporadically go back to this song and I found it's a really good closer for a set, <laughs> especially for an evening. But um, I was sitting around the house one day, and this guitar is tuned really down low, like in B-flat. And so when I started singing it in my normal voice, it was too low to sing down. So I realized it was easy enough to sing in my tenor voice with the chords down low. It put the chords underneath the voice instead of equal or above it. So I instantly fell in love with that sound. On, and the last song that I sung, it's the same thing. I'm transitioning my baritone voice, which I don't really have a baritone voice, but I can sing it. I can sing in a roughly baritone voice, mm-hmm. um, and it's okay. But the tenor is really where my voice really likes to be. I tend to end up writing songs that aren't in that key. They don't work for my voice as well. So now I'm trying to transition some of these songs that I really like singing to showcase that part of my voice better. And these two songs, actually, i got to tell you, I've never sung either one of them in that key until right now. Well, I would never have thought that. I know you were talking about that before we started. You're like, I'm going to play one in, in tenor. But I thought that was a beautiful performance. I was really nervous. Beautiful performance, Because I was yeah. like, what if... You know, cause what, and I'll tell you something, as a singer, if you get used to singing in a certain key or in a certain timbre... Mm-hmm. Um, your your muscle memory remembers that. And if you start singing in a different range, you forget the words sometimes, you know, because you're you're fooling with the melody, for one thing, and you're also fooling with what your voice is comfortable hearing, you know, what your ears are comfortable hearing and what your voice is used to doing from a muscle memory standpoint. So it's really stepping out to just do it a completely different way and see what happens. But I'm enjoying the process. So have you always been a singer as well? Did that come with... Well, you know, I got to tell you, I never considered myself a singer. Mm-hmm. I've always sung. And there's really a difference. I've always considered myself a guitarist and a songwriter. 
singing is just the vehicle of which I love to sing. I don't think I have ever, uh, you know, as singers go, I've never really thought of myself as a really good singer because I know what really good singers sound like. But over the years, I've gotten really comfortable with accepting myself for what I do and accepting my voice for what it is and its limitations, Mm -hmm. as well as some of the parts where it excels. And I think where I excel as a singer more than having a good voice is being able to communicate feelings. So I hope that I did that on those songs. Yeah, the emotional expression. I I think... You know, and this is something that that came up um, when I was a student at Full Sail. I, one of the professors there, he worked with NSYNC and all these different famous bands. I can't think of any other ones uh, at the moment, but it was one of the things that he always said about vocals is you can have the most technically trained vocalist, but if they can't do the emotional expression, then what's what's the point? You know, it's not going to come out in the recording. It's not going to translate, you know, during performance. So I don't know. I think that's the most important thing. I think that's what you did on the last song. So I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. You went to full sale. That's amazing. I know about that school. I did. I never went. I I did. And my audio engineer who's uh, recording and editing this episode, Xander Johnstone, he went as well. So, um, it was good times. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good time. You know, it seemed to me that I had a bass player in a band in Phoenix that went to full sale, but I know he went to the Recording Arts and Science, or what is it, the CRAS, it's C-R-A-S, Conservatory of Arts, I don't know, Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences. And I've actually recorded there in both of their facilities, and it's just like full sale. It's like a full-on accredited eight-month course that you, you, it's an accredited university course but it's they've got their own buildings and you go there yeah. to become a recording engineer and producer and learn your craft you know yeah it was crazy there there were good times uh oh, there were good times there the the professors there definitely they don't hire anybody who hasn't had like that wide breadth of uh, experience as well but but anyways the the songwriting piece is definitely what has stuck with me the most and mm-hmm. so whenever anybody talks about expression and you know staying true to the song and there's there's definitely learnable traits in songwriting that i feel you can apply that one plus two will equal three if you just mechanically go through this motion you'll eventually get a better song but i think there's an x factor there too of of the expression and emotion you know uh, it goes back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier uh, just about you know craft and product versus, you know, feeling what you're actually singing about and actually having something to sing about. And, um, you know, I, I have to say, I, there is a craft to learning songwriting, but I never learned it in a university. I learned it by listening to records when I was addicted to mm-hmm. records when I was a kid, and I, I tried to learn um, my heroes. And I would put the needle on when you had vinyl, and I would do it over and over and over again. And then you discover the how these songs were put together, and it would always be a mystery, you know, when you're listening. And then you would kind of get these gems that would leap out at you and go, "Oh, that's what they did," you know? Yeah, and I'm and like, so oh, I gotta learning, use that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you're learning your craft, and 
that uh, that becomes a vocabulary mm-hmm. that you can uh, uh, you know um, apply to your own songs. But I was very fortunate at a very young age um, when I first started really writing songs uh, at the age of sixteen. That uh, when in high school I was a songwriting partner, kind of a you know a duo. We had a band, but I was a songwriting partner of this guy named Michael Silvisher. And he was uh, he was like two years younger than me. I, I came into his high school as a junior in high school, and he was, I, I think, a freshman at that point. But we hit it off. <coughs> he was a piano player and a guitar player, but a really good songwriter. And we became kind of like the Lennon and McCartney of our school when we were going there, you know. And um, I, I realized very early on when I first started writing because I was more into the Grateful Dead when I first met him, but he was writing songs for Thelma Houston and selling his songs to these people in Los Angeles when he was a sophomore in high school, and he was conducting (laughs) choirs. He was a little genius, right? Well, Michael went on to have more than 100 songs published with Walt Disney, and he's responsible with his uh, former wife writing all the... um, the music for the Muppets, the Disney Muppets. And this yeah, guy became hugely famous. I mean, uh, not so much famous, but very, very successful in the industry. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you can find he's got over like 100 songs published with Walt Disney, and they're all gold records, you know, because of Walt Disney. He was under contract. But I learned my craft by just sitting with him, sharing ideas like, what about this? Hey, but that feedback. What kind of idea do you, what would you put over this? And we never sat down and went, well, you know. One plus two equals One plus three. two equals three, yeah. and so you can't really do that. We, we never approached music like that. And I found out later, that's exactly how Lennon and McCartney actually started. They were just kids. They were having a good time. They had a basis of rock and roll. They had two or three, four chords that they worked with, and they built upon it. And they had heroes, people that they really liked listening to. And they devoured that music day and night until it became part of their DNA. Mm-hmm. And then it was regurgitated back out in their own way. And that's what I've tried to do my whole life. You know, it's just, I think there was a period of time where I just ingested so much music for a long time. But then there was another period where it was all coming out. And I wasn't really listening to that much music other than the ones I was writing. Because there was so much music in there. They wanted to come out. And I've always been an experimenter, too. So... And, you know, I use a lot of altered tunings and things. This was in standard. Um, the first one I sang was in drop D. But I use about 10 or 11 different tunings, most of which I just made up myself or some that I learned back in the 70s. And, just to you know, keep it interesting. Huh? And that's another thing, too. They interviewed Keith Richards. And they said, well, do you ever bottom out on songwriting? Do you ever get where you just have a, a block? And he goes, Never. He goes, because all you have to do is turn the key half a step on your guitar or put on blindfolds and hit a chord on a piano or something and you've got a new song. All you have to do is hear it. You just have to follow your ear. And if you get a block, you just change the tuning on your guitar or play in a different key and you, you'll end up getting a new song. I'll be taking notes here. We'll try the, I'll try the blindfold thing. <laughs> Well, sure, you know, yeah. it works, actually. I've done it, and it, it actually... I've done things where I just tune my guitar. I have no idea what tuning I'm in. And then mm-hmm. I go, well, okay, that didn't really sound that good, but I'll tune it again, you know, and I go, oh, that works. And then let's build on that, and you'll work with it for a while. And, you know, it doesn't 
help you so much if you're playing with other people because I have no idea. When I'm in altered tunings, I have no idea what the chords are. I'm school. Right. I actually went to school and I actually studied guitar with some really good guitar teachers. Mm-hmm. But I prefer to play in tunings that I have no idea what the chords are. So I can tell you what they are if I sat down and thought about it, you know, and, oh, that's what that is. But I never I think that. about it when I'm actually just writing. Well, Sage, it's been so great having you today. I have a couple of wrap-up questions for you. So, one, I'm going to start asking everybody this question, but what do you think is missing from the Lost Cruces music community that we need that we could be doing right now? Wow. What what do we need that that's something that could be changed? That's a loaded question. That's a super loaded question. That is a very loaded question. <laughs> I'm just gonna throw it at you. <laughs> I could <laughs> I could get myself in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, I lived in Austin for three years at a time when Austin was the live music capital of the world, and it was just at the top of its game. And one of the things that was great about it. There was just a ton of work and it paid pretty well. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing that I thought was really cool was that Austin encouraged like what we're doing today, it encouraged original music with their artists. It encouraged um, creativity and it also encouraged people to be at their best. You know, like when you go out, mm-hmm. don't go out half cocked mm-hmm. because the competition was so strong. You were competing for the same gig with people that had played with Willie Nelson. I mean, literally. And I'm not kidding. You know, I wow. mean, Jimmy Vaughn and people like that were just on the scene. And the same clubs that you're going to try to go to get a job at, if you weren't good, you weren't going to get the job. So I think that. You know, in Las Cruces, it's at the very beginning of what Austin had been and has been for a long time, which is a very creative town. I don't think it's that right now. They went the other way to go with product and, you know, genericness and everything. There's still tons of great musicians there, but every musician I know in Austin complains about the money went down. Yeah. Uh, everybody sounds, you know, kind of like the other person. Everybody's trying to be the other person. When I was there, you couldn't find two musicians that were alike. You couldn't. Everybody was their own unique per- brand. They were their own unique person, and it was celebrated. Mm-hmm. Here... Um, And I'll just speak from experience. I've had really good experience in Las Cruces over the last seven years in general. Mm -hmm. But then there's places where I found that I really couldn't work if I wanted to be as creative as I wanted to be. And I know that I'm good at that part of myself being what we did today. So more like songwriter, like original music. It doesn't always have to be original, but... Be original with whatever you're doing, how you do it, how you approach it. And I've, I've, you know, I've, you know, uh, had some challenges getting work in places that only wanted me to do covers. Mm -hmm. I've been told by certain clubs here, if you do a cover, you don't come back. I mean, if you do an original Original. song, you don't come back. I've actually been told that. So, uh, in general, I, I've places like this, you know, mm-hmm. they encourage me to do, be myself. I've done gigs here where I've done all original music all night long, and they love it. And nobody even knew they were my songs. Mm-hmm. There's been other places where I kind of 
mix it up. And, and I like to actually do that because I do like to relate to the audience and I don't want the audience to not relate to you just because you're doing your thing. Right. Um, it's just that I've had so many years doing that that you want to share it. Of and course. you find that, wow, I really have my hands tied behind my back to be able to do the thing that I do best. And so now I have to do this thing that I do second best in order to keep my job. I would like to see Las Cruces really go the other way to in celebrate good songwriters, good musicianship, um, and do whatever it is that they do best and not put that thing on top of them to say, you can't, you know, do it. But I, I would say the caveat there is that you should be good at what you do. Like right. if you don't, if you're not, then do the thing that you do second best if that's better than what you do. Because mm. it, it, it's about entertainment at the, at the end of the day. You know, you still right. want people to be entertained. So I hope I do that with my own music. But honestly, I, I got four hours of covers that I'll, I'll play covers all night if you want. I just I see such a wealth of potential and creativity in Las Cruces that I think we could do something really neat here if we tried to do it on purpose, you know, and we just, it didn't just happen by accident, but everybody kind of had this cultivated mindset of let's turn Las Cruces into the, the next music hotspot and how do we make it original and unique to us? I think that yeah. what you want is you want a lot of interaction between the musicians themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I think competition is really healthy, but I think up to a point it's healthy. Mm -hmm. And then I think it can get kind of go the other way. And I think there's plenty of work for everybody, but I do find that there's what I found in Las Cruces for myself is that everybody kind of picks their friends and they pick their click and they stick with that and they pick the venues that they're going to, you know, work out of and they stick with that, but you don't see a lot of cross pollination. There is some, by the way. Um, there's a few musicians in town that I think are really starting to do that on their own. I would love to be more involved in that myself, and I think I think a lot of people just think I'm out there doing my own thing, but I'm not that way. I, I like interacting with other people. Like what we're doing today is what I really enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. It's just that. I, you know, I'm an adult and I go out and I try to make money at what I do and I'm yeah. out there doing it. So you don't see me a lot or you see me only in where I am. But well, I like to hard. see people interact a lot with yeah. what we're doing right now is actually the basis for what we did in Austin quite a lot, which was songwriter showcases and they rotate and there's not always the same people and it's not always the same format. And even sometimes it's not even the same host, but people take the reins and they put together three or four songwriters in and move it around different venues uh, and they showcase their craft, you know, and um, that was a really popular thing in, in Austin among people that were working. I mean, everybody had jobs. They, were, they didn't need to do that. They did it out of the love of the song. Yeah. And I, I would like to see that happen more. Well, I love I love all of that. You got my hamster wheel running, so now I'm like, ooh, what can we put together? We got to get everybody together on like a Tuesday or something, which is what the day that this was recorded on was a Tuesday, um, because all the musicians are working on the weekend. So we'll we'll figure something out. I really, yeah, I really like that answer. You, you gave me some things to think about. Um, now for everybody else, 
who's listening to Sage and you want to follow him, you want to support him, you dig the music, you want some more of it, what are some ways that people can find you, that they can get, they can download some of the music that they heard today? Right. Um, I have a website. It's Sage Gentle Wing, S-A-G-E-G-E-N-T-L-E-W-I-N-G.com. And uh, I have a, my record is up there for sale with PayPal. Um, and you can actually contact me on that website with my you know, phone or email. There's lots of um, various samples of music on the website that um, you, know, you can kind of you know, get little clips of things that I've done. Um, you know, a lot of it's just kind of homegrown videos and things that I don't have a lot of professionally done stuff up there yet. There are a few, and they're actually older videos from like 25 or 30 years ago. <coughs> But you can, you can access where I'm going because there is a, a performance calendar up there. So sagegentlewing.com will tell you where I'm playing locally, um, usually a, for the next two months out. And uh, that's the best way to find me. Well, the planner in me loves that. <laughs> I, I love having some notice because I plan things out far in advance. Um, me too. Do you do like the Facebook or Instagram email I'm, list? I'm on Facebook, Sage Gentlewing, Facebook slash, you know, Sage Gentlewing. There's a hyphen in my name on the vice Facebook. I don't think it's actually even necessary. If you type my name in, it's going to come up as me because there's only one. Oh, mm. that's nice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The one and the, the one. only. So I'm on Facebook. I'm actually on Twitter. I, you know, I never use Twitter. So I think it's at Sage GW. I think it, that's either Twitter or Instagram. But I am on Instagram. I think it's at Sage G, G, Sage GW. I hardly ever use it myself, but I'm trying to use it more now because I've kind of been a Facebook junkie for promotions. Because right. you can go on Facebook and access well, Las Cruces useful. Live Music. Yeah. I post my posts on Las Cruces Live Music as well as my own Facebook page. So I'm out there on social media. Okay. So if people wanted to get a hold of you, they could message you on, on Facebook or... They could. Or reach out via the website and other things that you have available. Exactly. Well, Sage, thank you so much for coming on today. We were supposed to get together PC pre-covid uh on a different show yeah i got um, shelved for a year yeah i got shelved for a year but i'm glad that this finally happened long yeah. overdue i'm so grateful thank you so much for coming on thank you and thank you so much to our sponsors at icebox brewery for yes. hosting us today you guys are beautiful thank you and thank you to our house audio engineer for recording and editing today's episode, Xander Johnstone. And last but not least, thank you to our partners at Las Cruces Today and Bravo Mike Communications. You all are beautiful, and we'll see you next Friday. All right. See ya. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the Abiding Blue Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please help us grow it by leaving a review and giving it a share. If you'd like to be considered as a guest for the show, please contact us through bitingblueproductionsllc.com. We'll see you next week.